destroying the entire universe. Radio Free Demos, an Ixen Draconis fan podcast broadcasting from a post-Demos orbit on Voltaire Station. This is episode 46 of Radio Free Demos, Unwrapping Party. With apologies, uh, we unloaded the Kafka 6 libraries onto the second, third, and what's remaining of the fourth floor, and the rereaders have not been able to cope with the amount of book dust that was added to the atmosphere, so we're all <coughs> choked up with literature today. We're also out of floors. Mm -hmm. So this week we'll be talking about our Sunday campaign again since we started playing. Uh, looking at a festive aside from Sev. Opening our Christmas presents. And then talk a little bit about what's new and awesome this week. One of the big new concepts in HSD 2.0 is backgrounds. Which are little packets of history and color and a few little powers and abilities. They kind of round you out, so maybe you were a soldier, or maybe you were a rich dilettante. This kind of gives you some abilities to go with that concept. So, um, I'd like to ask my co-host this week, uh, what backgrounds are you using for your new builds? Personally, I'm going with Embarrassingly Dated. I like this one because you get a simplify on all community checks when you come back in style. Uh, I'm, I'm taking the, the male hyena back background, which means you fail all social tests. Oh, that's sad. It's really sad. I'm sorry. But hey, at least it comes with uh, penalties to your body as well. <laughs> it does. <laughs> Missing an ear. Minus two all perception. <laughs> I tend to choose the backgrounds that are actually in the book. Oh, 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 Fuh. oh, oh. Fuh. But, you know, I, I really enjoy the dubious origin. Yeah. It's really nice to have a uh, complete and total character reset halfway through the game without <laughs> having to kill your old character off. Hmm. Also known like as the... someone I could name. <laughs> <laughs> also known as the... Player finally got around to actually reading the rules. <laughs> rebuild. <laughs> Cotton board resurrected. Also, it's kind of amusing. The uh, positive variation of that gives you a once a session, screw the GM type of role. It's like, oh, I just got spaced. Oh, I don't need to breathe. Funny how that works. I've got space gills. I, I, I never did, apparently. <laughs> I just now found out, though. It's evolved for straining face, uh, space krill. <laughs> I just learned I'm immune to fire. Hmm. Don't know how that works with fur, but hey, genetics does crazy things these days. <laughs> you think you would have found that out in the third grade or so? It's special for it smells so bad when it's burning that it actually puts fire out. <laughs> this interview is coming directly from the North Pole. So uh, I'd like to take a moment to talk about the true meaning of Christmas. In a developers chat slash backer preview chat session on the HSD YouTube channel, Sev spent a little bit of time talking about Christmas in Seoul, which if you've followed this podcast, I'm so sorry, uh, that's <laughs> been a, a favorite topic of mine on and off for the last two holiday episodes. And he confirms that there is in fact Christmas in Seoul. Uh, it's celebrated on December 25th of the Terran calendar, which is useful and easy to mark. Uh, he says it's also one of only two holidays that follows the Terran calendar. Uh, in a long ago chat online, he mentioned the second one, I think, which was Unification Day, which is celebrated on January 1st of the Terran calendar. 
And that's kind of Unification Day is kind of a general celebration slash commemoration of Earth and the people who came before us. Over the years, it's kind of evolved into a slightly ironic um, not so celebration because you kind of look at humans and say, oh, well, what have they done lately? Not a lot. Um, turned into mutant monsters and tried to kill us, maybe. We don't know. Um, but it's not really celebrated so much. It's just kind of dimly acknowledged. When the original Mars colonists first came to Mars, that's a weak sentence, uh, they brought their holidays with them, uh, in particular Christmas. Although I, I really argue that like Diwali and some of the Asian holidays should have made a bigger splash, but opinions. Anyway, it's a light holiday. Um, Open and market commercialism defines which holidays survive. That's true. We are only going on the remainders uh, after 700 years of social drift. The original scientists brought it with the cultural baggage of Christianity, which does still exist in soul in small ways, birth of Jesus, et cetera, et cetera, all those kind of legend ties. But when they were faced with the wide-eyed, puppy-faced vector children, cubs, they didn't really want to go down that road. They didn't really want to explain the social legacies of 2,000 plus years of religion. So they just said it's a holiday about gift giving and fellowship. Pretty straightforward. So when Generation 3 rolled around some 20 years later, there was an influx of colonists from Terra, and they brought with them cultural baggage, not surprisingly, but without the kind of the obligation to the vectors that the original scientists had. So they brought their traditions of what Christmas means and presumably what 100 other holidays mean. But the vectors kind of saw it and said, well, that's complicated. We don't like that. We've got a holiday. We've been celebrating it for 20 years. This is what Christmas means. And as humanity died out, so did the baggage. But presumably it's still available in some forms here and there sitcoms i don't know I'm still watching that old scratchy copy of scrooge yeah yeah mom won't let me stop <laughs> i really think actually the scrooge story probably carried further than the birth of christ because every single sitcom that was ever played has a three ghosts of christmas episode there's not that many birth of jesus episodes that's true like that's only true. two huh. um so that seemed like a, a legacy myth that might have survived into the next well, millennium my theory as a vector is that the church was really holding on to the intellectual property and that you'd get sued if you tried to do a Jesus story. <laughs> Don't forget the uh, week-long observance of Black Friday. Yes. There's no real significance around it other than just massive sales. Right. And, and turkey vectors get 10% off. <laughs> are there any turkey vectors? There are now. Oh, dear. Um, I, I kind of wonder, because of the way holidays tend to evolve, if there would have been kind of an anthropomorphic good cop, bad cop, positive figure, negative figure between Christmas and New Year. Since they're both separated a week apart, they're on the Terran calendar, which makes them kind of random. They're heavily linked holidays. And the way these things tend to work on Earth is you, you get Santa and then you get Krampus and they're kind of polar opposites. Um, old father time, young baby time, whatever. So I'm kind of wondering if the Christmas holiday, which was really kind of the best of humanity, maybe carries a positive association. Maybe they kept Santa. Probably they kept Santa. He's on a lot of Coke products. And then if something else, maybe a little darker, turned up to go with New Year's, I don't know. The uh, reindeer and jingle harnesses kind of took over from Santa. I really thought they're kind of hot. And <laughs> I thought it was part of the good part of Christmas. <laughs> I know they wouldn't have like a New Year's whisper. That would just be really, really dark and malign. Just as a side note, Marsco does own all the IP rights to the old Pepsi Disney Corporation. Oh, I believe it. Mm -hmm. Um Okay, well, um, rewind. Let's not mention Santa anymore. <laughs> this reference has been monetized. <laughs> <laughs> ho, 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 ho. Turn around.
So after a three-month hiatus, we return to our Sunday games, at least for one episode. Uh, hopefully we'll start again in the new year. Right now we're playing, I think, Werewolf the Apocalypse rather than HSD, but we had HSD as soon as we've digested the new rule set. So one thing that I've been trying to implement in the sessions of White Wolf and other games that I've implemented, I forget where I picked it up, but the idea of combat is kind of a three-act, three-movement thing. Rather than rolling out all of the stages of combat, which if you're dealing with tanky characters can take an awful long time, um, I've kind of started trying to do a round for beginning, a round for middle, and a round for end, and just see how the combat begins, the intermediate steps and resolves. You know, add any skill challenge type things as you want to to that, but so far as like rolled combat scenes goes, just kind of focus on that. It's not something I want to do every time, because if you do that, you're giving a disservice to characters invested heavily in hit points or initiative. But for a lot of combats, that kind of telegraphs it down like you would a skill challenge in 4.0 D&D. And I think it makes for a smoother, more stylized scenario for combat that's not that focal. Right. Because combats that, that run on and on, I mean, they, if a combat runs on and on and it continues to be interesting, great. But frequently, once you're four or five hours into a combat, everyone's ready for it to move on. It, you're just kind of going into the, to the end for the, for the sake of doing it. And kind of skipping, pushing the fast forward button and skipping forwards is a really, really nice idea at that point. Although, if you don't know the rules very well, or you know the rules very well, even a three-round combat sequence can take two or three hours. That's true. That's true. Oh, those 15th level D&D characters. <laughs> I'm just re reflecting that the sneaky stealth character can be kind of challenging to incorporate in a group because either they get to do their thing or everyone else gets to be involved, and that's not fun. And similarly, the super tough high hit point character can potentially create that kind of instance, as, as, you, as you mentioned, Corbeau, is that... that the only time you shine is when everyone else is bored. That's not good. If you can resolve it kind of like a skill challenge and make some rolls based on stamina or somehow find a way to roll against hit points themselves, right? that might uh, smooth that out a little bit. There's also a lot of variance based off the game and based off just how, I guess, lethal the characters are. If we are referencing D&D, for example, that's very much built around defenses and buffs and layering on more and more different things, that just draws out everything excessively. If you look at something that's more, let's say, werewolf, where the characters and the enemies are generally glass cannons, ideally the entire party on both sides is glass cannons, combat can be very lightning fast. It's miss, 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 insta-kill, insta-kill. Yeah, right. we had some attacks doing like 10 points of damage and our characters have 8 hit points. Yeah. Not consistently, but potentially. Right. Well, you know, being a rare creature and going into a company that produces rare metals that has well-armed guard force hurts. It hurts a lot. <laughs> yeah, but we could have turned away from that raft of magic item bearing boats and yeah, walked into this yeah. the sunset. But, uh, but on the other hand, uh, do you remember, I think it was back in the the original D&D campaign that we were all at together, someone ran a like heroic end of end of heroic tier game where it was like four long rounds of combat and we were starting to get our get our level 11 abilities uh -huh. but then it was like four more like encounters so we were not able to do all of the like recharge and you know wait five minutes and like three round workday stuff that dnd characters tend to do because sounds, it was a grueling right. eight encounter run. That sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah, and at the end of it, we were out of like encounter abilities because someone were coming back to back, and we could either 
like spend five minutes letting the enemy recharge so that we get those encounter powers back or just plunge into the next thing. Uh-huh. And I still remember that. And it was long, but the level of grueling was actually an interesting challenge on its own that we haven't faced too often. Yeah. And I'm not saying I'd want to replay that, but it was a unique type of story. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to, to face off in occasionally situations where you've got to play a long game or situations where, you no, know, you need to solve the problem right now. One of the things I was kind of telling myself is this is a bunch of new players not used to playing in the World of Darkness universe where most things are vulnerable to silver. And okay, this will be the time when you learn just what it means to be vulnerable to silver. Yeah. Uh, facing multiple armed guards with automatic weapons with, with silver in it. Um, hopefully that will never happen again. But but no one will forget that. Unlikely because I'm running the next story arc. You're going to be facing hipster chunks with coffee. <laughs> Silver coffee. Uh -oh. <laughs> is that an option? Mind that spoon. It's dangerous. It does aggravated damage. <laughs> if you decide to adopt the three-round combat as a common model, shake it up a little bit, maybe have a four-round thing or two back-to-back -back arcs or something just so people don't get complacent and start taking advantage of the streamlined format because all role-playing games are also resource-juggling games. There's, there's, that's unavoidable. You have your spendable attributes, you have your hit points, you have your gnosis, you have your whatever. And when you cut corners and move things at the speed of plot, uh, that important, like, tally can be a place for players to fudge. Right. I mean, as a conservative player, I have in the past felt kind of cheated when the GM was very, very generous about giving lots of time between anything meaningful to, to resupply and rest. And so people who just waste all their resources at the drop of a hat yeah. were rewarded by that very much. Um, Werewolf has some major plot elements around regaining Gnosis. That's a mini quest on its own. Yeah. True. It's a tool in your toolbox. Don't make it the only tool in your toolbox. Yeah. Yeah. But, but the overall principle of, if anything, like a skill challenge, a figure out the puzzle, combat, if anything gets drawn too long, there is no shame in finding shortcuts uh, because, I mean, okay, it's it compromises your integrity as a hardcore gamer, but the more important thing is for the whole table to have fun. Yeah. Th that does not mean give everything away. Oh, if you can't figure out in two minutes, here's the solution. Um, but just keep things moving. And you know, maybe they need to come back to it later. Maybe they need to lose. And when they feel better prepared, try it again. That's okay. The greatest lesson you can teach your table is that failure is an option. Yeah. Yeah. Information is fed into their minds in a constant stream. So, this week we've all got a little present from Sev uh, for Christmas, and I'd like to hand those out to our hosts now. Here you go. Thank Merry you. seasonal observance. Here. Ah, festive, ah. Yule, festive Yule. You'll never guess what's inside it. Corporate packaging. It is so hard to wrap a PDF, by the way. You don't have electronic wrapping paper? Well, I tried to, like, paste a picture of a gift wrap at the beginning and end, but Adobe is really expensive, even 2700 So, anyway, we, uh, we got our copies of the preview of HSD 2.0, and I'd like to spend this episode just quickly flipping through it for things that catch our eyes, sort of an unwrapping party. Anyway, we've got our books, so I say we uh, we go. There's not going to be any deep diving on anything. We're not going like, to actually read the pages, so maybe six months from now we'll regret some stuff we've said today. That's okay. So you're saying I don't get to critique the font? 
Um, you can critique the font. Okay. Font critiquing is totally on topic. So uh, let's just immediately dive into what I think is a very exciting portion of the book, uh, English major here. Uh, the table of contents is really amazing. I'm not kidding. It's one of the best tables of contents I've seen in a role-playing game. Uh, check it out. It's actually navigable and has things broken up by subtopic. It's really nice. Really on, on the level of an index. Uh, pretty smooth. Uh, it's got like all the substats and things like that called out. It's really usable as a guide to this very massive book. And the book clocks in at like 340 pages. It is not a small product. And it is full of words. There are many words. Actually, it's rather art light. I've noticed that too. We've got kind of the same general preamble in the first book, in this book to be familiar with from the second one, where it talks about the basic history of the universe, the birth of vectors. There's not really any significant changes there yet. I do feel like there's some material folded in from uh, Sound and Silence, and there's a little more specificity with numbers and percentages and population levels and things like that, which is kind of inherited from the, the product series before. This copy of the rules contains cogs, and it contains blips, which I think makes the product feel a lot more well-rounded, uh, and it sort of breaks the curse of like buying the second edition when you already bought the first edition, which is always kind of a, a frustration point. Although the first edition was selling for like well, $3 a copy or so. Yeah, yeah, it was a really nice little lost leader for the game. So it's good to have kind of all of the like standard PC races in one place. No, it doesn't have uh, Robofenix and it doesn't have brain bugs. Uh, there's presumably going to be a later antagonist book that those might pop into or a GM resource book. Both of those ideas have been floated. Um, page 24 is, uh, it's called Earth, unless they have page 25. Anyway, around page 24, there's a page called Earth. And this shows off the way history, the history pages work in this book. Um, if you go down a page like 25 or so, you'll see that it's just the timetable for Earth and it's broken up by like 100 year eras. And I think that Seva's hinted at maybe uh, period supplements or flashback books or DM guides that kind of address the year 200, year 300 or so. And so having these parallel tracks with each of the major worlds is kind of neat because you can see what happened during a given century. Uh, so like hundred year, the first hundred years is kind of the formative period, then the more more evolved period of, of the game and so on unto, unto modern times. And it shows how that world kind of shapes up in the grand timeline of HSD, which is neat. One thing I noticed when we got our first copy to 2.0 is the dates don't consistently quite match up with the timeline and sound and silence, which is for me the canon timeline. So... That might have been caught. I'm not sure. I'm going to look a little more closely at it when I have time and see if there's any like major oddments. But remember, this is inherited information as much as it is real factual information. Right. It does feel like the kind of unreliable narrator character is not there as much. The voice sounds more authoritative, a little less um, kind of jokey. So, and some people are going to miss that because the sense of humor was something that a lot of people liked about the first edition. It's a different tone. The artwork feels like a, a good mix of old and new. A lot of the new pieces are kind of moody and, and dark and somber. I like that a lot. There's a great, like, bat sniper on page 37. And somewhere there's a really cute snow leopard trudging through Ganymede, probably on the page about Ganymede. And it's, I think the art choices are pretty good. There's a lot of pieces from the original one, sometimes more in outline form or, like, referenced rather than actually used in full. But the choices were made are pretty good. Uh, none of the pieces that 
like didn't quite work for me in the first book seem to be in the second one so the art choices are, are solid in this like the pic picture on Europa page 38 is something huge boiling up from underneath the water it's just well composed yeah and a lateral in a space suit makes me happy really? yeah oh yeah Scooby-Doo <laughs> Scooby-Doo <laughs> There's a lot more information on, say, Ganymede um, and uh, some new stuff on Io and Mercury. So that kind of fleshes out Ganymede, which is a tiny bit of a skeleton in the first book. Add some more details there about its history, about how it relates to the like patterns of exploration in HST history, which I I've fixated on several times. It's got a good snow leopard, as I said. Yeah. And um, the world of uh, the worlds of Io, uh, great place to dispose of bodies and engage in corporate warfare. Mercury is just kind of a blasted wasteland. There's not really much to say about it. It's um, kind of a place for like deeply down and out people to go. Which I guess Io kind of and Ganymede too kind of qualify there. Um, maybe a little disappointed that we didn't get to Saturn and Neptune. Uh, those may turn up later on in again the GM guide or something like that. Around about 60 or so, we're in the races in page 54, 55, 56, 57, 58. And again, the book is incorporating a lot of the old stuff from the original core book and the newer stuff from the core extended universe. So all of the little races and things make an appearance and we get a couple of new figures, um, in particular red pandas. Very essential. Crowd pleasers? Yes, absolutely. Definitely pander to that audience. And lemurs. They pander to that audience? Oh, <laughs> that's so clever. That's good. <laughs> uh, and lemurs, which is kind of a, that one surprised me a little bit. The only primates in huh, yeah. in the soul universe now that we see in a regular basis and maybe maybe some other ones. We never really learn what's like represented in the grand scope of soul. Everything. Were sharks in there previously? Yeah, sharks. Sharks were in uh, second ed. We okay. didn't bring them to our table for. We just didn't really fit our our table personality. But right, first ed expansion. Yeah, extended core extended. They're kind of focused and driven critters, uh, a little like angry horses. Uh, one thing that kind of stood out is their laterals can go feral really easily. Okay, uh, and that kind of stuck out as like a plot element for me because um, they could go native and no one would ever notice. Huh. Ooh, pulse ones could go native and live hundreds of years. That must happen occasionally. Thanks. Um, uh, 75, we're in the world of morphisms, and kind of like skills, the morphism list has been really abbreviated. Uh, it's just large-scale gross changes to anatomy. Uh -huh. So a lot of things that are more related to coloration aren't there anymore. So you're not seeing... Um, uh, the glowy morphs. Yeah, you're not seeing any glowy morphs. You're not seeing tusks and horns and hooves. Yeah. Things like that. It's really just large-scale body formatting things. So, like, you got you got extra limbs. You hybrid your lateral or whatever. These kind of large-scale things. A lot of the um, more fine-tuning things, like um, weird coloration and such, or tusks, moved to uh, quirks, I think, uh, which is a new concept for second head there. That, that makes a lot more sense to me. Yeah, they're kind of like weak feats almost. They do have game mechanics. They're not like curbs of quirks. Anything that can come attached to a headband should not be a whole separate character build. This is true. And weirdly well put. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also, the uh, cog frame list is listed there as well, so that kind of emphasizes that they're very similar concepts, which they are. Corporate education starts on page 86 or so, and this material is pretty similar to the original core write-up. Uh, from First Dead. It's got some, like, fine details about, um, like, 
opposition forces and rumors and things like that that have drifted over from Sound and Silence. But for the most part, there's no uh, really major changes, except possibly a little bit of a tone thing. Uh, you're not going to be able to play a Lumen Executive in this edition, maybe down the road. So check out page 110 and see if you can see what I'm excited about on this page. Tights? No, not the tights. I don't even know those are our tights. I do like the burden leather jacket. That's kind of fun. Do you see it? Come on. Oh, uh, yeah. Cute. <laughs> no, not the leather jacket. Do you see what I'm actually excited about in this picture? Uh, Korean. Korean. There's languages on this page. Oh, yeah. There's a mixture of English and some sort of Korean-derived Asian script, and it's what looks like Romanji Japanese as well. There are like two or three languages represented on this page, and this is the first time there's been any kind of suggestion that uh, Seoul has different dialects. Uh-huh. Uh, they don't expand on it. Maybe this is just the artist's interpretation, but I think it's really neat to see that because yeah. uh, it's been kind of something I've been wondering about, and um, I'm not going to call this proof, uh-huh. but um, it does emphasize that maybe there are different ideas, and it does also emphasize that this is a cyberpunk-derived setting in some ways, because when there's Korean in the background, you know you're in a cyberpunk universe. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, there's a shark there, too. I think he's got hooves. Yeah, well, or, or a circle. Oh, I hope not. No, that's a shark. Does this game license circles? You could probably have them printed at your local biomat. Sure. We start on like one, 110, 111. We've got some uh, checks and things like that, uh, like your basic die rolls. Uh, it's broken up into some kind of infographic chunks and things like that. Fairly easy to skim through and scan. Uh, we're not going to go into detail here because... There's many, many, many episodes to go in detail on our stat things. There is a nice difficulty rating page, page 112, uh, which kind of shows like what difficulty level everything happens at. It's it's good. Um, it's pretty concise. I think you can easily see what you should be targeting as a game master for your check difficulties. Mm-hmm. So that's a plus. That's good because n- not all games list those, and it's not always easy to figure out. Yeah, and it seems like like it's a good amount of detail. It's like a page. It's not just a brief phrase or anything like that. It goes uh-huh. a little bit into more de- more depth. So points there. Page one one nine. Made a note here. Has has the um, character flowchart we've been asking for. Excellent. Yes, that needed to happen. Uh, so it's got page numbers, references the chapters you need to go to, where they are, and helps you kind of get through the basics of how to build your character. Um, not in great detail, but at least says where your stuff is. And the next few pages kind of emphasize where, how many points, etc. The abbreviated proficiency list, page 121, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 skills. Pretty tight list. Also hexagons. Hexagons are very important in the character sheets. It's good shape. It is the shape of the future. No, it is. It it, it looks techno. Bees really were smart getting in on it so early. I used them rather heavily in the web page, so be careful what you say about hexagons. No, I like hexagons. Okay. Uh, Let's see. Healing, mass, wound, shape, character sheet, score, references. Oh, a list of how many points you start out with everything on page 125. That is very helpful. It's Mm -hmm. nice to see them all in one place. A simple one-page listing of all the special abilities that your species gives you. Yeah, yeah, it's it's nice. Everything's been kind of consolidated in um, pretty brief little info blurbs. Take a brief look at, I think, 124. I just want to say, on page 124, there's a bird. No, there's a cute little striped hyena. Yeah, yeah, for striped hyenas. Yeah, he's got kind of a blunted muddle, muzzle. It looks very like he's on Ganymede again. Um, I think Ganymede has some of the better-looking characters. Are you saying it's the only cold place in the universe? 
Um, possibly. I guess it could be Europa. I guess it does look like Jupiter in the background. Oh, so it's Europa, more likely. Uh, yeah, there's a 20-foot-tall ice sphere we were talking about last episode, right there. What bit me? Let's see. Character progression, uh, some examples thereof, how it works, uh, landmarks, notoriety, all sorts of other concepts we've been playing with in the test games. And a very simple uh, guideline on page one, 135 that's the, uh, like, how to drive soft skills and a uh, sort of a cat thing that I wanted to come back and look at several times. I like him. Backgrounds again. We've talked about those before. We'll talk about them again in the future. Quirks. Quirks are on page 144. This is a new concept. I don't think they had this when we were doing the test games. Did they? Yes. They did. They did. Yeah. Okay. Did they? Mm -hmm. It looks familiar to me. You only had three quirks, but they definitely had them. Oh, right. Okay. So... This is where things like bioluminescence move to. Yeah. No, I remember that. I just don't remember seeing them when we were playing. I must have... Well, some of them look like the um, skill powers that you had in, in First Ed, and some of them look like some of the less invasive, uh, what do you call them, morphisms. It's kind of a mixture of smaller concept stuff from your... Uh... Oh, it yeah, really yeah, is yeah. a catch-all of a lot of the <coughs> kind of borderline too weak or borderline not tuned abilities from all over 1.0. Right. Just about anything that didn't quite make the cut moved over to a quirk. Uh, Radiant, I think, is using combat um, transcendent technology type things. Is that here? <coughs> yep, and that's in here. Boyfriend on Ganymede, that's one of my favorites. I've heard of this. And the always, uh, always beloved kick it a few times. <laughs> I like bioluminescence. I'm going to get that next character. That being said, it does have some... Generally, what's in the quirks is not going to be useful all the time, every game or every encounter. But every so often, it is the perfect quirk for what's going on at the time. Whether you just happen to read happen to have read the book that described the exact plot point that you're looking for or some of the other abilities. It's it's got some useful, interesting little details. And you get three of them just to start. So Hmm. I guess you could purchase more later on. I don't know if you can purchase more. I I think you can purchase some with some of your other customizations, but it's not something that you can easily buy into. I'm going to move to 158, where we have some great stuff for Game Masters that I think First Ed was really not strong on, and it's good to have it in one place. And those are outlines for contract structures, for payouts, rewards, uh, experience points, and how those work in terms of game flow and how awards should happen. Advancement for proficiencies, uh, even with training from like, what do you call it? Neuro, 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 neuroflex. Neuroplex. Neuroplex, even from neuroplex training. Uh, corporate favor, all these little kind of on-sheet and off-sheet ways of advancing your character in kind of a, like three or four pages on um, character growth. Again, very concise. This edition has learned. Yeah. So it's not just you get one credit per adventure. No, that's only in our campaign, actually. Other people get 50 credits. Every one of you decided to start (laughs) broke. We did, we did. (laughs) I have doubled the rewards, and it's still a percentage of broke. (laughs) Keep spending it on things like shoes for the children or homogenized milk. You wanted to buy oxygen tanks. (laughs) I mean, that that seemed important somehow. (laughs) 
Uh, combat hacking, page 166. I really had fun with this mechanic in the test games. This is the ability to do really kind of like movie style cinematic hacking. Mm-hmm. This is magic. This it, is magic in its pure form, not the chaos form that comes later. Right, right. No, this is this is techno wizardry. This is uh, being able to, within three rounds, make a computer explode. Hippa! I like this a lot, but it was hard to use because you had to kind of drill down into the thing to really get your, your hooks into it. Right. And use multiple actions. Yeah. It wasn't an immediate explosion. It took some time and some work and some money. Yeah. Although the list here is a lot more detailed than uh, the hacking section that was in the preview. This gives a lot more details about what you can do and what the different steps are, what the different actions look like. Yeah. No, I see there's some new uh, some new ones that I would have really have enjoyed beforehand. That probably means that some of the more powerful ones have been uh, watered down a little bit, which is fine, too. Uh, Just remember, you don't have to be combat effective as a character. As long as there's turrets around, you can hack. <laughs> Let the NPCs work for you, not against you. Uh, 179. Best title for a page ever. Uh, Exploiting the Dead. <laughs> I feel like this should have been in the reward section earlier, but this is about various ways you can loot corpses. Or robots or large space structures, non-experience point rewards, uh, salvaging materials, all the stuff that players or characters keep asking about how to do that aren't really, weren't really answers for it before. But now we know. Nice. Yeah, yeah. To uh, dive a little bit deeper than the light touch we've been having, if you actually read the couple of paragraphs on looting, we pause and actually explain exactly why there are not very many rules on looting. It is not seen as fitting the flavor of the game. Uh-huh. Yeah, I can see that. Although, if you if you're getting into a post post scarcity campaign uh, in some way, or you're at the end of your arc and the cause the uh, megacorps are now like the big bad enemy conspiracies, then you're going to need some options that are a little more off the grid. And this is here for you. Or to put it a different way, it's how to reward your party members without the PCs seeing every potential enemy as a walking loot pinata. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it seems like in a game like HSD. In most campaign plot arcs, you're going to become criminals eventually. There's no way to avoid it. If only because Positivity. You've well, you got me there. <laughs> Actually, that does come in. In the part under Bounty Collection, it makes a point that most people who have weapons are a criminal in some place or another. Yeah. There is generally a bounty on anybody's head that's not just living the good life. But that certainly doesn't mean that there's a singular police force, IRPF aside, that enforces these things. While you might have bounties on certain characters in certain parts of space, you can run around without any major problems elsewhere, and that won't come up until someone puts a couple of uh, bullets through your heart and then scans your face into the galactic bounty thing to uh, collect up. So mind your P's and Q's. It also calls out that player characters could have bounties that don't actually mean that they have to duck every lawman they see, because it, it just doesn't work like that. Uh, looking at the gear lists and things like that. Oh, the gear list is amazing. There's some actually right off the bat. There's something that we didn't see. I think it might have been in our uh, most recent playtest game. But there's a a chunk of items called one credit purchases. I like these a lot. They're it's just miscellaneous crap. It says subtext. This list is not all authoritative. Uh, there's a lot of little things that you can get that maybe aren't even worth pricing out that are kind of fun. Kind of a wand of wonder type bank of little rando toys that you can play with that don't do much and they all cost a credit, which basically says we don't care about pricing. Um, they're cute stuff though. Spicy water, add any fluid and it adds zest to an otherwise dull drink. 
pocket-sized friodes. Glare care. It's like a throat lozenge for your eyes. What? Is that there? Glare care. Yeah. Oh, it's or, like a throat lozenge. It is a throat lozenge for your eyes. Or robotic googly eyes. Who doesn't love robotic googly eyes? But pretty much anything that you're asking about, if it's like less powerful than this stuff, is just a back pocket $1 purchase. And for younger gamers, I feel like that kind of more literalist approach to, to equipment lists, this is kind of useful to have. Sure. When you've been playing long enough to start free improvising equipment lists, you may be in a dangerous place, but uh, maybe you'll transcend the need for this. I don't know. The equipment list does go on, um, as it does in many high-tech games. Yeah. Uh, it's broken up by corporations at some points, where they start listing out uh, Marsco specialty items, ASR specialty items, etc., etc. Uh, there's some cute jokes in there. <laughs> no comment on the saddles right up. Later on, though, we get into um, guns and weapons. I confess I don't like this section. I do like this section. So your mileage may vary. Yeah, well, I don't mind that it exists. The detailed write-up is good information. But looking at the page count, it's over 16 pages, closer to 30. That's two or possibly three folios this took up in a book that was kind of over the page count limit already. I don't, I don't think it's necessary. I think that would have been a fine supplemental PDF. However, maybe for this people, this book is their PDF, and it's not that big of an issue if they're not getting the hardbound copy. I'd be curious to know what the majority of people's purchase point is on this. For me, though, if I was getting a hardbound book, I, th I think like close to 30 pages of item cards is a little excessive. And I got to say, it reminds me of Palladium in a, in a not good way. Minor variations uh, given their own independent write-ups. Uh -huh. That's me, though. I don't dig on equipment lists very much, and it just feels like a lot. But it's concise. They're on one page, one card. This is much more pocket-sized. Uh, this is a good way of presenting information for sure. There's just a lot of it. Mm -hmm. The other way that you put this information is a table yeah. with footnotes because there's a lot of notes on here and a lot of special exemptions on here that don't fit in a table structure. Yeah. So given the options, I do like how it's presented. And it is limited to pretty much weapons and armor, which are going to be some of the more focused and more complex pieces of equipment that you're going to have, especially in this system, which does focus a little bit more on both weapons and armor, but also the, the concept that the characters are going to start acquiring signature pieces of weapons and armor. True. That they can carry places that other people wouldn't. Well, in that case, your weapon might need its own character sheet because uh, it's a convenient place to store information and nothing else. Mm -hmm. It was really useful to have this during the playtest games. I just like copied the graphic of that section and dumped it into my character sheet directly. Same here. <laughs> it's nice. It does go on for 30 pages, though. <laughs> that is true. It is a lot of book real estate. But when you come to the table and you are basically handing the people, handing your players, here are your two weapons cards, here's your armor card, this is what you need for combat, that's pretty powerful. And th there's a certain amount of streamline right there. That'd be super useful for game masters, too, to hand out items rather than transcribing it from table over and over again. You just kind of play off the deck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that takes it to surgeries. Um, a lot of the, uh, what do you call them? Um, Reclamations or generals? Yeah, uh, the reclamation surgeries are kind of folded into the idea of character progression at this point. They're more automatic uh, gimmies. I think there's a couple other things that operate like that as well. Um, this is all pretty familiar from like first ed stylistically, though. Um, we'll have to go into a deeper dive to see if it's radically different. I'm not seeing a lot that's super new. It's a, a bigger list. Uh, there's a lot more. Oh, there's some like flying through the deep space uh, stuff from from uh, TTI. That's cool. Two. 84 uh, transcendent implants 
there's a lot of words here and probably going to need to do a deep dive on this at some point in time when we really, really tuck into second ed. But uh, it looks like overall the pattern with TTI with transcendent implants is the lower levels are much safer. They aren't prone to exploding automatically. You're not going to like go get your fresh out of the box TTI implant and then turn yourself into a screaming void and vanish off the face of the earth. Probably. Well, they also made a point that most vectors will never get past the first level. Yeah. Because most vectors do not have the capability of getting past the first level. Or shouldn't. Right. You actually have to buy into elsewhere, I believe it's Quirks, the ability to access greater power, which also gives you some of the counterspell or dampening abilities as well. So if you're one of those players that likes slamming your head on big red buttons, head, hand on big red buttons, and going for the thing that's going to take down the entire party with you, you have your options there. But if you're just playing it safe and you want some nice back pocket stuff, that's also an option. But it is nice that it's a little bit more of a build instead of just throw money at the walking nuclear option in your forearm. Yes, yes, that is a good thing. We start getting into, so I like this, um, not specifically this, this section, but I like where it's placed. I think that putting combat towards the end of the book kind of de-emphasizes it somewhat. That's a good thing to my mind. Where, where, where the combat rules are, that is where your heart is. And putting it that far out, I think, gives it kind of more equal weight with the plot-centric stuff and Game Master rewards and things like that. So I, I like that it's been pushed back a little bit. It's also easier to find, but um, it makes it less the heart of the game, which is probably a good thing. It's also a lot more streamlined. Yeah. Compared yeah. to HSD-1 or several other systems, The you, you don't go off into the endless pit of tables anymore. And did you see the example combats? Oh my gosh. Wines, those are on page um, 308 or so. They're detailed. They have round by round and hex map by hex map sections, both narrative and the way the dice mechanics work. Oh, very nice. It's really slick. Yeah. I approve. I don't think I've seen better combat examples than this. Sure, outclasses the White Wolf ones we've been working with, where you don't even know what edition the rules are pulled from. Certainly not the one you're reading right now. No, this is cool. This is really well done. And there's a lot of it. There's like four pages, five pages, six pages. That's good, though. And I mean, don't mistake a lack of complexity for a lack of depth. The combat rules that we were playing... Different people were doing different things. There there was always options. It's just you don't have to pause the entire game to start rolling on tables to figure out what actually happens. Curious to see how ranged combat works because I don't remember anymore. It's evaporated from my tiny head. Yeah. But I, I remember it being much easier to do ranged combat in this version than in the previous version, which kind of confused me. Uh, advanced combat rules, flight, sneaking, two-weapon attacking, uh, outnumbering your enemy, improvised weapons, grenades, throwables, bombables, grappling. Grappling only gets a one-paragraph write-up. That's not a bad thing. Uh, vehicles and mounted combat rules. Vehicles do include other PCs. Mounted huh. combat includes other PCs. Vehicles rarely <laughs> include other PCs. I think specifically they don't, unless you're playing a bioprobe, which we covered in the next book. Huh. Adversaries, mook rules. I like mook rules always. Structuring and point balancing very simple antagonists. Some examples, we're up to page like 325. And then this is an odd one, techniques, um, which are a major like character point thing you can do if your character goes down that road. It really customizes your combat ability. But they're like in the Oort cloud of this book, like on page 330 or so, um, way after the other character creation bits have popped up, you get into uh, buying techniques. And that's, uh-huh. that's kind of weird. I mean, they're very closely tied to combat. They're exclusively combat maneuvers, but it's kind of odd to see them just just kind of drifting there. So maybe they're kind of the appendix A of the book because yeah. they are kind of listy. The each technique is fairly simple. It 
generally does one thing, and that one thing is usually an adjustment to a combat number. So th there's not a whole lot of depth, and honestly, it's not really interesting reading through them. You're not pulling any lore out. You're not pulling any flavor out. It's their feats, their, their techniques. Yeah, but they're not really an optional mechanic. They're part of your character sheet in as much as, like, quirks are. So it's just, it's it's not critical, I and mean, it's 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 got to be somewhere. I just thought it was kind of odd that it was out, out in the in materials. Okay. Quirks live up to their namesake very well. They're kind of weird, out there, unexpected things that your character can do that often would not be expected or really flavor text your character or how your character goes about things. It's it's the difference between a detective and Sherlock Holmes, for example. Techniques just don't have that same import. Sure, you can do you can run through the techniques and start that this is how you build a flying character, or this is how you build a defensive character, or this is how you build a quick melee guy that can get up and stabby, but they don't have the same flair. And they're also a lot harder to understand if you haven't read the combat section, too. So if you're kind of flipping through this book from beginning to end, what kind of a gamer are you? But they make a lot more sense when you already flowed through the combat section. Actually, I, I, let, me, let me rephrase how I present that. Each quirk is interesting. It flavors your character. It really changes how you approach your character. Each yep. individual technique is not interesting. But in taking it whole, how you put all your techniques together to influence your own individual combat style is interesting. Hmm. I don't like an individual technique that stands out. But when you start layering in five of them in a theme, suddenly you're a flying, dual-wielding, dual-pistoling gunslinger yeah. or you put five together and suddenly you're a ninja so it's it's your overall fighting style yeah i recall seeing some stuff that let me be a thrown improvised weapon specialist which is one of my recurring favorite character types so yeah you can kind of delicately tailor your character's combat abilities i think early on uh in the first drafts of second ed uh the proficiencies were there and then not there and the quirks were there and not there and they kind of were all different ways of customizing your character sheet in the first playtest game we had, it didn't really have the quirks and the non-combat proficiencies. So having them as their own separate section, it's kind of a natural evolution of this game, which really is the end of the book at this point. They need character sheets and tables and such. Character sheets. There's hexagons. Everyone loves character Everyone sheets. Hexagons. There are hexes all over your character it sheets. It is true. Bloop, 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 bloop. Surgery flowcharts, etc., etc. Anyway, that is a short and slightly batty look at 2.0 without going into too much depth on any one point. How come the surgery flowchart doesn't have red fingerprints all over it? That's left to you to add. <clears throat> okay, oh, I see, as you get more of them, right? Because it's biased against cogs if you do that. True, true. They have blue sparkles. Anything else? No. Trigonometry did make it into the book. Trigonometry? Trigonometry. Which is that one? That's uh, when you quickly calculate how to ricochet your bullet off of one thing to hit someone else. Oh, stunt shooting. Yes. Funsies. Is that a technique? Uh, yes, that is a technique. Oh, I'm kind of excited by that. Nifty. My finger is tired from pressing buttons. I think I'll go put it to bed. Well, from there, I guess we can move on to what's been awesome in the news this week. That's when we ask our hosts what's been exciting in the worlds of sci-fi, technology, science, or Elon Musk, depending on your personal preference. Well, I'd just like to say, from shopping from some books for the holidays, uh, Alistair Reynolds continues to churn out books, and he's still just a good, solid, classic sci-fi writer working 
in the modern era. So thumbs up for him. Is he just possibly an artificial intelligence? Possibly. Possibly. Plus British, so he's better than us. Okay, yeah. You just kind of plug in the Cockney module for Steampunk. But a, a real plus, uh, a real thumbs up for his uh, book Revenger, which is kind of a steampunk uh, spaceship pirate novel. It's hard to describe, but, but it's a lot of fun. I recommend it. I feel like all this year, astronomy has been in the news more than I've ever been familiar with. It's been a great year for solar system nonsense. Um, two recent articles stuck out at me. Astronomers found the most distant known object in the solar system. They're calling it Far Out, or 2018VG18. It's about 20 astronomical units further out than Eris. Uh, an astronomical unit is an astronomical unit is the distance from earth to the sun uh it's 120 au from the sun so really way the heck far out there what we know about it is it's pink yay yeah uh it's probably 500 kilometers wide which kind of puts it at the like bottom end of the named objects or top end of the unnamed objects somewhere in there it's like the low middle of sizes of interesting things in the universe Mm. so So it's not a planet no, it's not a. I don't think it's a planet. It's just. It's just an object. It's a thing. It's a, a dwarf planet, maybe. Um, I don't know how those are ruled, but it's, it's smaller than like any of the other dwarf planets. We are in way sub Pluto terrain here. Right. It's smaller than Ceres. Two hundred fifty kilometer radius is not that big by planet standards, and I wouldn't want to weigh that much. But Christmas is hard on all of our waistlines. <laughs> Uh, so that was kind of interesting. That's far out. Uh, another fun one was, uh, this is more of the like hypothetical science, indeed if it is science, articles. Uh, Europa, scientists propose nuclear-powered tunnel-bot mission to Europa. Well, that just, that just screams Ixodraconis right there. Yeah, it does. Yeah, uh, it's a, uh, the idea is a sort of mole drill thing, but heat, heat-driven, that kind of melts its way into Europa's core to find... Uh, life under the ice, leaving behind a trail of fiber optic cables and signal relay stations. Uh, this is somewhere between science fiction and business proposal, uh, but it's so big and exciting that I think it's, it's got the word bot in it. It's probably going to get some grant money. I, I, I like it. This is not coming soon, though, to your uh, local launch pad. Which, I guess that's the end of this week's episode, so thank you for listening to us, and uh, festive upcoming new year um, and catchy outro line intro music is future club and outro music is chronicles both by serious beat this podcast is copyright 2017 by radio free demos and may be used in any not-for-profit project with appropriate credit and notification check out our website radiofreedemos.com that's d-e-i-m-o-s for more rambling, resources, links to official and fan-driven content, and our full catalog of episodes. And look for us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. 